Hello and welcome to Some Ornithological Chats, the podcast brought to you by the Scottish Ornithologists Club. Uh, my guest today is Scott Mason from the BTO. I've got a few true or false questions just to start with, uh, Scott. So true or false, it's autumn. True. <laughs> true or false, it's going to be autumn for two more months. True. True or false, life is good. <laughs> uh, true. <laughs> Excellent. That's three out of three. Uh, well done. <laughs> so uh, coming up later in the podcast, we've got some bird sounds. There's a really autumnal feel. So we've got some yellow broad warbler noises and some rarer pipit calls to have a listen to. But first, we're going to talk to Scott. Uh, so, Scott, tell us who you are, where you are and what you do. Yeah, so uh, thanks for the introduction. Um, I am Scott Mason, um, work for the BTO as the Bertrek organiser. I've been doing that role for five years now. Um, I'm based at the Thetford office in Norfolk, um, but I actually live in Suffolk myself and been a bird watcher for oh, goodness knows how many years, probably since I was about six years old. So yeah, 39 years, something like that. Uh, I grew up right next to Minsmere RSPB Reserve, so kind of learnt my trade there full of fantastic birds, full of fantastic birders that helped nurture me, bring me up through and then sort of spread my wings a bit further and started going to my own patch, which I've been watching for probably 15 years now. Um, and just, yeah, love birding in Suffolk and sort of all around the country as well. Nice. So as you said, you are, I'm going to call you the bird track supremo. That's like your <laughs> official job title. It is now. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, imagine this is uh, Desert Island Discs and you're, you've got a Radio 4 audience and not an audience primarily made up of birders. And just sort of explain what bird track is and, and what it aims to do. So bird track is a partnership project with the RSPB, the Scottish Ornithologist Club, Welsh Ornithological Society and Birdwatch Island. It was set up in 2004, mainly to map um, the migration of uh, summer migrants into the UK, but it actually proved so popular that they expanded it to cover all seasons. And you can actually record any species, any bird species in there, um, and you can use it anywhere in the world now. Um, but that's the primary thing, is to kind of get a feel of exactly how various things like climate change or just even colder or warmer springs affect our summer migrants and our autumn migrants as well. So quite, you know, topical for this time of year. Very topical for this time of year. So it's a citizen science project, essentially. Yes. yes. And I yep. guess one of, the, one of the ways of making that work, one of the ways of making it feasible for people to record data is to sort of bring things into the 21st century and give them apps to record so they can access so they can input data when they're out and about on their phone and BirdTrack has had an app for several years now would yeah. you say yes but you've recently released a brand new app haven't you we have yes so tell us tell us about that what what are the big changes so we've had an app as you said for quite a few years um it was kind of a very slimmed down sort of digital notebook, I suppose, that basically allowed you to record um, the species you saw and some additional information as well, like breeding evidence, etc. Um, since I took on the role about five years ago, there's been a, a lot more developments on the website side of things. Um, so we wanted to carry across a lot of what we were doing within the website across to the app and bring it more up to date. And there's obviously we've 
apps as they get older there's issues that go along with those we want to address some of those we want to make it more user friendly more intuitive to use and so we did quite a big overhaul of the app so we started probably back end of last year really looking at exactly what we wanted to do we had a big wish list and then it was a kind of breaking it down how we built it and what we actually wanted to include and then just went away and we've built it and yeah it went live on the 30th of august so um have you had any any responses to it yet have you had any feedback yeah we've had uh, really good feedback it's always one of those things when you've <laughs> a bit like sending your child to school for the first day <laughs> you're a bit like really <laughs> apprehensive and excited at the same time so you know we've been looking at it for several months um, and been really pleased with how things have progressed and what it was going to look like and how it actually worked but obviously we've kind of we know how to do it um, we put it out to testers they're all giving us positive feedback as well um, so thanks to everyone that did test it um, first off but it's yeah as I said it's really apprehensive when you go to send it out and kind of when we push the button I'm sitting there like biting my nails going oh no here we go <laughs> um, but yeah the response has been really really good um, you know there's been everyone saying it's far more intuitive than it was they love the layout they love the look of it they like the extra things you could do within the app um, there's a, you know there's the odd person that will have a few negative comments but that's kind of um, goes with the course of doing something like this you can't please everyone as yeah, much as we try to every, everyone birds in different ways and it's you exactly know, there's never it. going to be one sort of solution no. that is that is suitable to everyone so while, while we're on the subject of feedback uh, soc are going to be releasing a questionnaire soon which is going to be asking for feedback on the new bird track app and others various other platforms of bird recording you know why people like whichever one they like uh, what they would change, et cetera, et cetera. That is probably going to be going out roughly at the same time as this podcast. Obviously, you knew about this anyway, but we're going to be sharing <laughs> the uh, the results with you, of course. Um, but you mentioned that, you know, not only is it is it a sort of an overhaul of, of, of what went before, but it does some new stuff too. So tell us a bit about some of the new stuff that the app can do. Yeah, so the app now has um, like a built-in checklist. So it will provide a checklist of species that you're likely to encounter at the place that you're visiting at the time of year that you're visiting as well. So that could be really helpful for new users. Um, there's also a couple of other personal checklists. So you can actually have the same thing, but only using your personal data. So if you go to a patch regularly and you, you know, you'll have your list of species that you see there, you can now have a checklist to choose from that only shows the species that you've seen at that location for that time of year so that can make it really quick and intuitive to just go through and add the species or you can actually have a personal checklist that displays everything that you've ever seen at that location um, there's also the ability to like review historical records so previously you had to go on the website if you wanted to look at any of the records that you previously submitted you can now do that in the app and you can edit the records as well there's um, a quick add function, which is pretty, we kind of put that in for those one-off ad hoc sightings that you might be on a train or something and you see something noteworthy. You might just be out for a family walk and you you know, you know hear a turtle dove purring or something like that. And you, the quick add is a nice, easy way of being able to record that 
swiftly without the need to go through loads of options. And there's also the option now to record the other taxa that we have in BirdTrack via the app directly as well. That's, I mean, that's a real tempter for me. So it's no secret between us, at least, that, <laughs> that I use, uh, how can I say, the, the other, the other <laughs> resource. <laughs> so I'm, I'm an eBird user for my sins, but I think the ability to um, record butterfly sightings in the same way that you would record bird sightings as a sort of a sort of presence and absence complete list type thing that's a real tempter well when I say a real tempter I guess what I should do is I should just start using bird track for that because I can't find an app to do that for butterflies mm -hmm. so I, th I think other people are going to find that sort of thing really useful too so what happens to those data so when we first set this well let me go back we already had mammals and damselflies and dragonflies in bird track and they were put in um, for the mammal atlas and the dragonfly atlas that was going out the, the year that they were introduced. We've always kind of thought about whether we expand the other taxa and that then raises questions of what do you add in. We, we kind of toyed with the idea of let's put everything in, but then you've got to look after all of those species lists for those, any changes. It's bad enough with birds keeping up with the changes that are going on there, let alone the other taxa. So we kind of took a step back and said, why are we collecting these data? And the main thing is we felt that bird watchers are really well placed to be able to grab a load of ad hoc um, incidental records that probably wouldn't go anywhere. So, you know, like you've just said, you can't find anywhere to put your butterfly records. So we didn't want to create yet another platform that people had to go to, but we felt that we we're in a good position to be able to take advantage of those people that are already out. You know, bird watchers, you see it on Twitter and everything. During the summer months, they go and start recording their butterflies or dragonflies, etc. So we came up with a species list of the other taxa that we wanted to include. We approached all of the organisations um, that are relevant to those taxa groups, so like butterfly conservation, etc., and kind of worked with them. They were all happy with it. And we said that we wanted the records to flow through to iRecord. And they all agreed that that was the best platform for us to make the records available because there's already the established links with the county recorders or the local recorders for those particular taxa through iRecord. So any records you add into BirdTrack for non-avian taxa will flow on a nightly basis through to iRecord and that way they're made available to all the relevant recorders. So they are through some sort of computational magic making their way to relevant conservationists and data collectors. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. I mean I've got no excuse really. I really ought to start using it to record butterflies. And I think perhaps now is the perfect time to start because I don't see well actually I'm seeing quite a few butterflies at the moment so painted ladies coming in on the yeah. on the southeasterlies that we've got and probably red admirals doing the same in fact red admirals coming in off sea watches the last few times <laughs> I've been out sea watching which is always uh, which is always a cool thing to see so yeah I mean that is a real a real game changer for me and I'm I'm definitely it's just a matter of me getting my finger up and actually downloading the app and starting to use it really but I think it would be really really useful and it's great that the data are going straight to the people who know exactly what to do with it. 
That's it. So, and they, they can verify the data as well. So if they have any queries, they can pass the query back through BirdTrack to the user. So you'll get a notification within um, on the website so that you've got a, like a notification to respond to. And so they can ask any queries they might have about a particular record. So if I was to record like 10 Camberwell beauties, yep. then uh, I could expect an email. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I mean, even one would be nice. Um, so that's what I want to be able to do with it is to sort of go for a walk and at the, at the end record, you know, maybe I saw four tortoise shells and five red admirals and a peacock. But it's a sort of the presence absence data that, I would like to be able to do and I guess for the birds as well that's probably your bread and butter isn't it that's what you really want people to do is to com record and uh, complete lists yes yeah but there's loads of other things that people can do as well so additional data that people can record instead of presence and oh, sorry on top of presence and absence so give us a give us a summary of what sort of other really useful things people can do so a lot of this kind of you know, like you said, the complete list is kind of the gold standard. It's where you were telling us that you've what telling us every species that you've seen whilst out um, on a visit. You know, I'd, I'd like to say bird watch, but you know, we're all bird watchers. Never switch off. We we're always <laughs> bird watching. <laughs> um, so yeah, you can add like presence and absence. So you say, oh, we saw these species, but adding counts can be really helpful as well because. You know, house sparrows at one time, who thought we'd have to start counting house sparrows? Um, but by adding counts in, we can start to look at populations as well, changes in populations. We can add breeding evidence as well. So this is particularly useful for rare and scarce species within a county um, and nationally. So the rare breeding bird panel work quite closely with a lot of the local recorders, um, you know, county recorders as you're probably aware of. And a lot of the data that they use within the rare breeding bird panel report actually comes from bird track users. Um, so yeah, anything you can add to that, you can add in um, age categories, you can add plumage details in, you can add flight directions in. So the whole host of other information that you can use to sort of broaden the use of your records. But yeah, probably the biggest ones are actually and in breeding evidence, especially, as I said, for the rare and scarce species. So by breeding evidence, I mean, you could just so record something like a singing wood warbler, for example. That's yeah. that's a type of breeding evidence, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So there's kind of various degrees. So there's kind of um, possible, probable and, um, you know, proven breeding. And there's kind of there's different variations within those that kind uh, or different options, should I say, within those that uh go alongside whether that's possible or um proven um yeah. so you can select from any of those and what about if i was to record let's say i'm birding in the somewhere in Strathspey in late may and i hear a rhinex singing and i yep. thought well i better record that but you know it's obviously pretty sensitive yeah we Already, again, as I said, we work with uh, the Rare Breeding Bird Panel quite closely and we have regular meetings sort of every couple of years just to go through a list of species that we consider to be sensitive, um, be that in the breeding season, 
in the wintertime for some species or just purely all year. And what happens if you enter a record from for one of those species, it's automatically flagged as sensitive. So it will appear in your records, but it won't appear on any maps that people might look at. So we've got some sort of public facing maps in BirdTrack. Um, there's the app. You can look at recent sightings within the app. Um, but those species will be removed from the app. So if you start searching for it, it will come back with no results. It will it will display your records on that map to you, but not to anyone else. Okay. Um, yeah. That's really, really reassuring. And, but obviously those data stay in the database and can yeah. be used by... Yes. And you can, decision makers, etc. Yeah. And you can mark any record as sensitive as well. Oh, okay. So you can, within the extras tab, so both on the website and in the app, there's like an extras um, option. That, that's where all the other information is kept. So like we were talking about the breeding events, et cetera, there's an option in there to mark a record as sensitive because it's not just the scarce species or those that are vulnerable through egg collectors, photographers or any other general disturbance that there might might be you might be bird watching on private land that yeah. you've got access to and actually that species although it's not nationally rare it might be of interest to someone and you don't want the site being known about so you can mark any record as sensitive via those extras there are lots of legitimate reasons for suppression. Uh, there's, there's, oh, yeah. a whole pod, there's a whole podcast about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it all sounds really, really great. It all sounds like a really great way to sort of not only to get your data to the people who need it, but also to sort of organise your own sort of personal database on what you've where you've been, what you've seen, et cetera, et cetera. So what are the sort of the grand aims for all of the data that, that go into bird track what sort of what do you hope to be able to do with them i think we want to make even more use of them um when i've looked in the past around about 75 percent of all the bird reports that are produced every year actually cite bird track as a source of data the there's a huge amount of data in there and this is one of the ongoing issues that we have with um those that are actually analyzing the data outside of the BTO, so this is primarily like county recorders. There's a vast amount of data in there, and we're kind of trying to make um, make it more usable for those recorders. So there's even if you're recording the presence only of a species, we're doing things that will actually allow you the counties to display those information. So you can display it in maps, you can display it in um, graphical format so you can look at you know the peak periods that x species might be reported in and you can compare that to previous years as well so we we want to do more from that side of stuff and we want to encourage our users um, as much as possible to provide as much information as they can about the species that they're recording and that's where adding breeding evidence pinpointing records so if you see an unusual species or you see some breeding evidence of a particular species again particularly rare and scarce species you can use the pinpoint function and that just narrows down the record makes it far more usable so the counties can actually say well we know that 
you know, there was a cluster of turtle dove records from this area or nightingales over here, etc. And it also helps further down the line as well, because you're being far more precise about where these species are breeding. So it's a combination of the two. And it's probably the biggest job I have is balancing the requirements of users with the requirements of those people that want to extract the data and use it in some way. Um, because you, it's the user side. We have people that are kind of fresh into birdwatching. And I think sometimes we forget that we all started somewhere. And, you know, people don't necessarily know, know the significance of recording a certain species. And it's like my job and also the jobs of um, clubs, organisations to guide the people through that. But, yeah, we've got this wide range of people from new in to those that know exactly why they should record you know, as precisely as they can the information they're recording. Um, so that's kind of the grand scheme of what we're trying to do. It's And we've got plans in place to sort of address a lot of the um, issues that we know that recorders have to make the data even more usable for, for the purposes they need it for. So if something like BirdTrack had been, an, had been around for maybe 50 years or so, and this ability to record in complete lists, do you think that declines in birds such as turtle dove and willow tit would have been picked up sooner? It's a difficult one. Um, I always say that bird track is kind of the BTO's uh, finger on the pulse. A lot of the other structured surveys, um, you know, that they have their period of time. So whether that's BBS going through the breeding season um, or webs sort of throughout the year, there's always this analysis bit that needs to be done at the end to kind of work out what's happening. And that's really great and helpful for a lot of the, you know, policy and decision making. But bird track can kind of tell us what's happening now because we're having bird, uh, you know, records put in by users every day. We have, you know, thousands of records coming in every day. If someone says to us like last year, you know, where are my house martins? We can look in bird track and go, yeah, you're not the only one. Um, you can see that the reports of house martin is actually lower this year than it was last year, and we can start seeing the effects of weather. It's like um, a cold spring, as you can really see last year, where we had a cold snap at the end of April. The reporting rate for house martin actually went down. <laughs> didn't level off it just went down so birds must have been either gathered in um like large flocks somewhere or they'd actually just left the country uh, or perished and it's yeah. those things and i think you know like you say if it had been set up a few like 50 years ago we might have more of a handle on exact you know we could see track those changes year on year and say no something's going wrong here and it's then it's the case of the the other surveys like bbs and other research that can go away and then go well what's causing this so it kind of acts as a bit of an early warning system in some yeah. cases that's exactly the phrase that i would use it's an early warning system if you notice for example a, a, a blip with your house martin records but it's not sustained over the following years and you recognize it as a blip but if something continues to decline over five or six years you have a much 
earlier recognition of this because all the data is coming into the same place and it's being looked at by people who know what they're doing, then you might if all the data were being collected disparately. And some of the declines that we've been seeing, certainly in my lifetime, are birds that were previously really, really common. Things like, you know, some of the classics of my youth, tree sparrow, corn bunting, yellowhammer, skylark, you know, all these sort of farmland bird declines, they, they were all extremely common. And I think when you think about that, that's a real incentive to record in a complete list because you don't know what the next tree sparrow corn bunting is going to be that there will be in the future there will be other species that suddenly start to decline and if we only go out and record the highlights then that's the sort of thing that might slip through the net yeah and i'm guilty of that when i before i joined um, bird track you pick up any of my old notebooks and they are just a list of the highlights of that particular visit. Um, I still do a lot of casual, what we call casual records, so that's incomplete lists, because that's kind of what I'm doing. That's my day-to-day is I'm walking around, like maybe at the office or something, and I, I'll record the highlight. But when I can, I do a complete list, because as you say, I don't know what the next winners and losers are gonna be. And I know that the, there's a lot of science that can be done with those complete lists to start tracking those changes. And, you know, there's other ways it can be used as well. Um, and it's just really helpful to be able to have a complete list of species. You know, if if people are submitting complete lists for a so particular area and no one's ever recorded lesser spotted woodpecker, we pretty much know that there's no lesser spotted woodpeckers there. If we just had casual records for that, you know, we can't be sure that there's no lesser spotted woodpeckers there it might just be that no one's considered them as a highlight or what to enter them into their species list so yeah it's the more you can do the more you can add the more we get out of it yeah it's a really important thing to stress really you know that there's a lot of valuable data in common birds and I, and I recognize the issues that people like county recorders have you know saying things like what am I supposed to do with 10,000 records of blackbird but you've sort of done your best to solve that problem for them by giving them these products that, you know, map densities across the recording area or, or you know, show data graphically instead. Yeah, there's still a lot that we can do within bird reports as well, I think. And I think some of it, you need to go right back and go, what does your bird report want to show in it? So, like, if you've got 10,000 Blackbird records, are they really going to make it into a bird report? Probably not. So you need to start looking at, you know, there's the high counts that you might want to put in there, but the products that we're producing um, enable you to show that in a graphical format and kind of put a bit of context into it. And you can start seeing areas where certain species aren't recorded. And if you overlay that with a map of the areas that bird, people have added their bird track records in, you can soon find areas within a county that are a lot poorly recorded. Even Norfolk, I mean, you think of Norfolk as a really well-watched um, county, but there's whole swathes of the county that just don't get many records from. Um, and you can start looking at those and be a bit proactive and say, well, actually, I can see that there's no records from this, or very few from this 10K area. Let me, let's go there and I'll do like, I don't know, five or six complete lists throughout the year. 
and I could keep doing repeat visits over the next few years and start to build up a picture of what's in there. So, so you're talking about really useful birding, really constructive birding. Yeah, I think. that's it. Well, I mean, we're probably all guilty of going to the what we call the honeypot sites because we know that we're going to see, you know, a nice array of species, and there might be a particular species you want to see. But there's also a lot of value to be had from going to areas, and you might not see anything of note, but you might also prove that there's there isn't species there or there are species there and that's both of those are as important as each other it's all data isn't it it is yeah and there'll be someone that wants to use that those data as well yeah especially in times of sort of climate and biodiversity crisis so last question about bird track before we move on to the more birdery stuff how much money would i have to give you to start using ebird <laughs> um <laughs> To be honest, I've got um, people that I go burden with that use eBird, and I know why they use it, and I know why I, I would use it if I went to the States probably, because it started off there, and it's, you know, and it's, they do what they do well for America, etc., and they're expanding across the world. But for me, knowing that the data is going to be used quite what like locally nationally and internationally from bird track for me that's why i use bird track um but you know i'm not going to tell people off for using eBay <laughs> because it is all scientific data at the end of the day and if that's what you've grown up using and that's what you're used to then you know you can carry on using it. I'm not going to come around and beat you with a stick and tell you off. <laughs> I mean, to me, the, to me, they're very, very similar. They both they want you to record complete lists of, of birds. Yeah. And the, the data that comes out of them, yes, there are some compatibility issues, but they are sort of usable in exactly the same ways. And I, I see them as complementary rather than in, as in comp competition with one another. But I do recognise that they having two systems makes life difficult for recorders, et cetera. Um, yeah. I think my biggest fear more than of than anything is that we get lots more of these recording systems and that just dilutes the data too much and you end up you know I was a recorder for 10 years I know that already there's a vast amount of data out there that you have to go to various sources to collect if you want to have a really you know good oversight of the records from your recorded area and if we end up with loads of these it just becomes impossible you've still you've got people submitting data via facebook whatsapp twitter and they assume that because they've put it on there they've submitted it to the local recorder and they they don't have the time to do that and that's my fear is if you have a load of these other portals or citizen science projects springing up that it just dilutes the data and you we were already seeing recorders saying i'm not going to use this system i'm not going to use that system because it's just it's a yeah. hellish job because, <laughs> so because they're and they're exactly. already busting yeah. a gut collating yes. several different data sets yeah Although, so, i mean you may be reassured to hear that from responses to a questionnaire that i put out to recorders about 75 to 80 percent of the data that comes to recorders in scotland comes through bird track so yeah, you, are, you are winning hands down there. 
I think that goes with you know the research that I've I've done into it, and I, you know eBirds growing, but we're growing at you know a similar rate. So as you say, I think they're complementary, and you know we have a good working relationship with Cornell and eBird, and you know we chat to each other quite regularly about various different bits and pieces, and we do want to make the best use of the data that we've got and potentially you know look at ways that we could work together more integrated in the future but the trouble you know it's always the devil in the detail and yeah. that's the bit that's you know it's not a case of just sticking a cable in the wall and the data flows from one to the other it doesn't work <laughs> like that unfortunately yeah um, i understand you know, and, and apologies for uh, ambushing you with you uh, ambushing you with eBird questions i know that that wasn't on the script but um no. It's, I get asked it a lot and, you know, it's, as you said, it's horses for courses and if that's what you prefer, then use it. Um, as long as the data is going in and being recorded somewhere, then great. Yeah. Well, that seems like the perfect note to end this bit on. We're going to have a listen to some bird noises now and then after, after we've done that, we're going to come back uh, and I'm going to keep to the script and I've <laughs> got some more birdie questions. So now for some bird noises. The autumn is full of iconic sounds for birders. The honking of geese migrating overhead, the arrival of red wings seeping overnight. But for me, one of my favourites is the call of the yellow-browed warbler. Now this is pretty distinctive, but it can sound similar to some of the noises that coltits make. So we're going to have a look at the coltit calls that sound like yellow-browed warbler calls. So first you'll hear coltit and then you'll hear yellow-browed warbler. So you can probably hear the similarities between those two calls. They will start high, go down in the middle and then go back up at the end. But you can probably notice a couple of things about the yellow-browed warbler call. First of all, it's a purer sound. And secondly, the highs are much, much higher than they are with a coltit call. So there's a much greater rise in frequency from the lowest part of the call to the highest part of the call in yellow-browed warbler than there is in coltit. What you'll hear next is Colt it, then yellow-browed, then colt it, then yellow-browed. Repeat it like that, and hopefully that will help you nail the differences in your head. So, that was the yellow-browed warbler and colt it. I know which one I prefer. Um, back, to, back to the birdie question, Scott, and this is always the first one that I ask people in this section. If you had access to a time machine once and once only, what moment in your birding life would you go back to and why? Oh, yeah, I had a long think about this and having listened to a couple of the previous podcasts, I'm kind of the same as them. I'd, you know, there's birds that I'd like to go back to and nail the identification of. Um, yeah, a couple spring to mind that I'd really like to kind of go back and try and nail those. Um, one being probable booted warbler on my patch um yeah just a bit i was doing 12 hour shifts and i was uh come back it was like i finished at six in the morning so i'd got on patch for about half past six and this warbler just sat in the bush in quite 
out in the open just preening itself and I was like looking at it going I'm sure you're a boot warbler <laughs> and uh, it, it flew off and never saw it again I come back later on and you know walked around and I think I was just so stunned at the time that I just didn't take enough notes for me to sort of you know be happy with it um so I'd quite like to do that one and there's yeah a probable Siberian ruby throat on Yell that yeah me and the two mates that were burdened had sat back onto us for like a split second and flew off and we absolutely hammered that area for and we saw it fly up the hill and over and we kept coming back for two or three days and we just we kind of all knew what it was yeah. but we just couldn't nail it it's yeah it's one of them ones but I suppose for me it's not an actual moment it would just be to go back and um go bird watching with my dad um he died when I was 17 so he was kind of my inspiration and sort of set me up within bird watching I thought he was at the time I thought he knew absolutely everything about birds as you probably do at a young age as a kid um and looking back he it was probably just an enthusiastic sort of birder um bird watcher I suppose you might say so he sort of knew his common birds but he didn't know you know the diversity of stuff that perhaps I've got on to learn but um just to go back and sort of thank him and take, go bird watching one more time and sort of you know you like to think that had he been alive I'd still be out there and going on trips with him and going around Minsmere and having a laugh and a joke with him and just to sort of say thank you for igniting something within me that sort of I've kept hold of all my life and yeah it's made me you know it's got me a job at the end of it and it's something I really enjoy and still have time to you know that's my happy place and I'll go off and just I'm quite happy burden on my own I have you know birded predominantly on my own most of my life and I'm quite comfortable with that and I was you know I still go bird watching with mates at the weekend etc but it's just that nice time to step away from work step away from anything else that's on my mind and just get absorbed into what I'm doing so yeah that would be my idea sort of an autumn round Minsmere with my dad I think would be the perfect that's day. A, that's a lovely answer and it certainly makes everything that I'm going to say from here on in in the rest of the podcast <laughs> seem really frivolous <laughs> but okay so imagine so imagine you get your um your wish in this time machine and you get to go birding with your dad can you so what do you think the best piece of advice that he could give you would be Ooh. what's the best bit of birding advice you've ever had the best bit of burden advice I've ever had is if the bird and the book don't agree go uh believe the bird and I kind of like, I kind of thought, what on earth does that mean? It's basically have a good look at the bird and don't try and make it fit what you think it is. Mm. Um, you know, within working within the BTO, we get quite a few emails of, I've just seen this and a picture and it's not that particular species. And it's, I think that's just a case of just keep looking at the bird. What makes it that particular species? So you start looking for the head, you know, has it got an eye stroke? You know, what colour bill has it got? What shape bill has it got? What's it doing? Just look at the bird and really absorb all the features and then kind of work out what you think it is and then compare 
And if they don't agree, so if the picture in the book in the book and the bird still don't agree, well, carry on looking at it and try and find something that makes it the, the species it is. So it's a, li- a really nice sort of reminder to look at the whole bird, I guess. Yeah. Absorb yeah. the whole bird. And I know that it, it can be easy to fixate on a on a single thing. I mean, perhaps maybe more so for beginners. I'm reminded of a time when my mother-in-law, who lives in the Pyrenees, uh, was trying to tell me about a bird she saw. And she said, oh, it had a yellow beak. And I said, well, what, what, what about the rest of it? And she said, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's it. It's, if you ever ask, like, a, not even a non-birder, but someone that's kind of fresh into birdwatching to describe a jay when it flies by, they go, oh, it had massive white patch all the way up its back. Yeah. And then the next person goes, oh, it had really blue wings. And then the next person, has bright pink. You just get, like you say, people see certain things and it's a case of, okay, step back and try and think about the bird as a whole and then that will help you nail the identification. Yeah, but I think it does happen at every level as well because it's easy to, if you're kicking around a scrub this time of year and you flush an aquacephalus warbler and you convince yourself that it's got really short primary projection, it's really easy to think, Oh, that was a Blythe Reed warbler. I need to, yeah. I need to see this properly and and nail it as a Blythe Reed without, and that might sway you in that direction rather than sort of looking at it open mindedly and and looking at the whole bird. I guess. Yeah, I think that's it happens more with the time of year and the location. Um, I go birding on Shetland kind of every autumn if I can, and. You do come across people, I think, that maybe start at the rare end because they think, you know, they're on Shetland. So they're going to, you know, they don't get reed warblers on Shetland in the autumn. They're all blizzard reeds and marsh. And it's like, no, and I know that from experience. We found a, or an acro that was just creeping through this, like, this vegetation and it just would not show. We spent an hour or an hour and a half just walking round and round trying to nail this bird. And, um, Martin Gardner was actually up there with a with a group and he saw us standing there and he pulled up in his van and kind of got out and he was like, what you got? And we just said, oh, we've got a acro. And no joke, this bird literally just hopped out of the bush, walked all the way along the fence line like this. And he went, oh, that's a reed warbler. And we went, yeah, we can see that now. <laughs> and I hopped back in, in the bush. Martin got in his van and just drove off with his group. And he's just like, typical, but yeah. It, that just goes to prove that this is, you know, September. They do get reed warblers up there, um, and that not everything you find is rare. But you you can get a bit blinkered sometimes, and even when there's a rare bird around, you can, you know, at a particular location, you, you, we probably all know of stories where people have tipped the wrong bird because they're just absolutely fixated that that's that what they saw was actually the rarer one or the particular one they're looking for when it wasn't. Yeah. So we're we're sort of we're venturing into birding blunders. So uh, <laughs> what I'd like to do is ask as many of the guests on the podcast as possible what the biggest birding blunder is going to be. Oh, sorry, what the biggest birding blunder was. Um, not not is going to be because that would be incredible <laughs> if you could predict that. <laughs> and then what I'd like is to sort of rank them against one another. Okay. <laughs> so David Steele got away with not being asked. 
I might, we'll have to get him back to get him to uh, ask him what his burning blunder was. Sarah Harris said that, I think she said that she called a farmyard duck as a little egret. She did, yeah. So let's see, let's see where we're going with you. Are so, we going higher or lower? <laughs> I don't know. It was, I'm not going to, it was really hard because we all make burning blunders. Yeah. And I kind of, I text my mates and went, can you think of a burden blunder? And I, they all replied back, sort of, can't really think of one off the top of my head. But the one that came to me was burden the patch and walking along. And I think it was like early or well, mid-May. And uh, I was suddenly pointing to my mate, went, what is that in that bush over there? And there's this black and white bird sat in the bush and uh, got a bins on it. And it was quite a way off. And I was like looking at it and I went, that's collared fly, isn't it? And my mate went, I think it is. Looks like a male collared fly. Right, let's get down there. So we started walking towards it and it still sat there. And I thought, okay, yeah, fly catchers can sort of sit there for a while. And just kept looking at it through the bins and going, oh God, it does look like a collared fly. And getting really excited at this sort of time and then kept creeping closer and then got closer and sort of looked through my bins and went, it's a flipping bottle. <laughs> And it was, it was <laughs> just like a bottle in this bush. And all that. So, oh, and it's still there. If you want to twitch it, the bottle is still there. So. Oh, man. It would be lovely <laughs> to see a photograph of this. I, could have, I mean, I've been fooled by a long and bleached bit of bin bag sort of lying in the top of a, of a, of a gorse bush and a long way away. And I thought, there's, there's a cooking, which is pretty rare on my patch. Yeah. Uh, I walked towards it and it was still a cuckoo and then you know it's still there and got closer and closer and still there until I could pick it out of the gorse bush and it was a long, <laughs> a long thin piece of, of bleached out bin bag I mean it can happen to us all but I think that at least both of Sarah's were birds so yeah, my, my bird one was um <laughs> just walking along the beach at Minsmere back when I used to I used to do Minsmere all the time and I remember looking out to see and seeing this duck sat on the sea and I was like, oh, cool. So I've got my scope and everything on it. And I was like, oh, it's a female ruddy duck. It's a bit unusual. And, uh, you know, carried on watching it. It's like, yeah, ruddy duck, wandered off. And uh, it's just one of them things that just my brain must have engaged about two days later and went, that was a female common scoter, wasn't it? <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd already gone back the visit centre and report this female ruddy duck because sat on the sea and everything like this um because at one time they were quite regular at Minsmere not on the sea but you know they were regular and yeah it's just one of them things you kind of go red for you know when you're on your own and you, your brain kicks in and tells you what it was I kind of remember feeling highly embarrassed at the time but not actually anyone being around me and just going yeah okay <laughs> so when you make a, a mistake with other people because other people make mistakes all the time, your mistake gets corrected. Yeah. As, as soon as you get close enough to the bottle, I guess. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but when you do it by yourself, the the thing is real. Yeah. Until the penny drops inside your head, and then you and you, you know, like you say, you may just be sort of walking down a street, and all of a sudden your head's in your hands, like, oh my god, what was I thinking? Yeah, I was like, <laughs> how can you even think it was a ruddy duck sat on the seat? It's like. You see common scoters all the time. It's like, why on earth did you... I guess it was on its own, kind of a bit closer inshore, 
um, making this sound worse, thinking like I actually got very good views of it, <laughs> but, <you> know, <laughs> bobbing around on the sea, thinking, why on earth didn't you just your immediate thing be common scooter? <laughs> yeah, we're all we're all human. That's the sort of thing yeah, that happens. Exactly. So you, you've got you've got an op- uh, an opportunity to be superhuman here to find a first for Scotland. Yeah. What would you predict the next first for Scotland is, and where can you imagine it being? Um. This was actually quite tricky because I kind of had to familiarise myself with the Scottish list to begin with. Um, but yeah, I've plumped for Eastern Crown Warbler, and I've I'll go mainland Shetland and maybe Jossetter even. It's, and, and maybe at the end of September this year. Yeah, as I'm walking up the the track. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it would be nice. I think it's a matter of time before we get an Eastern Crown Warbler for sure. I, mean, I think so, what there's been three records in. I think it's in Britain now. Might be four. Three or four, and there's been a couple yeah. of records in France recently as well. So I mean, they're they're, they're still coming. But yeah, that's that's really high on my list as well. I think. Yeah, I've I've, I've dipped. Well, I haven't dipped because I haven't actually gone for any of them. But um, yeah, I was I wasn't able to go for any of those which is a real shame because I really do like my warblers. So it's, you know, it's one I'd really like to see. I'm a big philosophophile. Can I say that? (laughs) Why not? You just have. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that would be for me. And I think so. it's a nostalgia thing for me a little bit because do you remember when the Field Guide to Rare Birds came out with all those beautiful Ian Lewington paintings in it? Yeah, still got it right behind me. Just down here. Nice. Yeah. So when that was published... There was this, you know, beautiful plate of eastern crowned warbler, a bird that I knew. Oh, there it is, a bird that I knew nothing about. And you know, you read about it, and it had like just historical records of, I think, a couple of birds on Helgoland or whatever yeah, from, yeah, from the turn absolutely. of the century. Yeah, yeah. And you just think, oh my word, imagine finding one of them. And then you know, it sort of maintained its mythical status a little bit. The first one was in. In the northeast, and it was originally identified as a yellow-browed. Is that right? Yeah, I think it was South Shields. Was it? South Shields, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, for me, it's always been one of those things that it's been there in the back of my mind, basically. You know, one of those mythical rarities. So that and bulbous petrol is another one. Um, yeah, things that things that are going to happen at some point. Yeah, and it's kind of like you say, it's maintained that mythical status. I mean. You remember that the same book you picked that up when there was red flank blue tail in there, and you're just like, oh look at that! And it's almost like, when am I going to find one? Yeah. It's getting to that point, you know, there's years where there's was it home last year that had four or something, four or five. Something like that. Yeah. Recently, I know there was there's sites that have had multiple birds, and you're just thinking, blimey, the next generation of birders that you know are coming through are going to have. Is red flank blue tail kind of going to be the red-breasted flycatcher of today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's hopefully some younger birders listening who just won't understand that blue tail was the holy grail. Absolutely, forty-five-year-old birders like us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolute holy grail. Yeah, and little egrets were rare. (laughs) Yeah, and sometimes they were ducks. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe, maybe rarities that devalue themselves by getting commoner is yeah. something that might might wind us up a little bit what would you put into a birding room 101 weather forecasts 
Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> you end up, well, kind of the autumn comes and uh, for me, like the autumn is the, the time of year that I really, you know, I enjoy my bird and I think I'm not alone on that. And you pour over weather maps. You've got hundreds of apps open with different uh, versions of what's going to happen. You're pouring over them um, and then you, you know, you, you head out expecting to be like take the rare shovel with you to be scooping them out of the way and and you end up with a few gold crests or something like that and you're like oh okay um yeah so i think it leads uh leads to something we call eastern mange where you just get everybody just you know on twitter etc just saying how great the weekend or this particular day is going to be and everyone gets so excited and then it just you know it's a damp squib. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I have a thing with weather forecast. I think it's an excellent choice, and I I would happily put it in Room 101, primarily because my approach to weather forecasts is keep looking at different apps until you find the one you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And one thing I've always noticed with weather forecasts is if you get the most, you know, perfect weather forecast coming up, with, and for me, that will always be easterlies being on the east coast with like some rain, etc. You can look and that can be like that for days and days and days until it gets to about three days before and then it swings to westerlies. But you never get it the other way around. You don't get like westerlies forecast and then it suddenly turns around to being easterlies with rain. That just never happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's always a it's always a bit of a letdown, isn't it? And I think that certainly my expectation of of what the weather delivers is is changing. When I was growing up, you know, I think that a southeasterly wind was enough to bring some stuff into the east coast. But I don't, I just don't feel like that's the case anymore. But certainly, in terms of arrivals of common migrants, it feels to me like there are no common migrants anymore. Things like red start and pied flycatcher and stuff like that. I know that we've had a a good autumn for that sort of thing very recently but in general you know it, i might see one red star one pied fly one wind chat on my patch per year yeah. and back 10 years ago 15 years ago at, at any decent southeasterly would have would have dumped yeah. a little bit of that sort of thing yeah. on the coast so maybe maybe it's not just weather forecasts that need to go into room 101 but perhaps my expectations as well <laughs> that's the thing i mean as you said, if you go back to the 60s, there was um, the great fall that happened around Minsmere. And mm. if anyone hasn't read that, just find, I can't remember where it is, um, but there's a kind of piece about it. And there's the birds that they had, they're you're talking like 10,000 red starts and that type yeah. of thing, and like 25 blue throats, all and buttons, multiple rhinecks. Pie fly catches, just but it like you say, it's the common migrants, and you just think that event will probably never be repeated again, and yeah. that's the sad thing is you you're unlikely to go out and ever witness a fall of migrants like that, and it's just not those species. It's every kind of migrant you look at, they real high totals just don't don't tend to get beaten anymore yeah you know? um, it happens occasionally with some species but 
majority of common migrants, you just don't get these huge falls that we used to. Um, it's because the populations just aren't there anymore. I agree, agree. And I think it's interesting that we see we're seeing more of the stuff that's coming from further afield. So perhaps Oliveback Pippet, uh, well, Yellow Broad Warbler is a great example. They they appear to be appearing in greater number. Yeah. And the stuff that's coming from closer to us is certainly not appearing in the same numbers as they used to. But I think this is the sort of thing that you could spend a lot of time analysing, and that's that's oh, got yeah. to be another another podcast. So thanks very much for coming and talking about bird track and time machines no and. A very a genuinely lovely answer about going back to spend some time birding with your dad. Um, I owe everything to my dad as well, my birding life and all the jobs I've had. So I, I found that really touching. So thank you very much, Scott. We're going to go and listen to some rare pipits now. Because it's the autumn and lots of birders are turning their minds to rarities at the moment, we're going to have a listen to the calls of some rare pipits. We're going to hear olive-backed and red-throated pipit, and we're going to compare them to tree pipit calls. All three species sound reasonably similar, but there are some subtle differences. So first of all, we're going to hear the calls of a migrating tree pipit. So you can hear that that's quite an urgent-sounding, buzzy, descending note that's repeated. What we're going to hear next is the same three pipit calls and then followed by six calls from olive-backed pipit. I'm sure you'll agree that they are pretty similar sounding calls but there are differences. The olive-back pipit that we heard second is higher frequency and to me it has even more urgency than the call of the tree pipit, perhaps because it starts higher and ends up at a lower frequency sooner and it's also a little bit buzzier to my ear as well. Have another listen. The other one we're going to listen to is red-footed pipit. Now this starts as high as the call of the olive-backed pipit, but descends really rapidly and then most of the energy is in the lower part of the call, the lower frequency range of the call. And what that gives us is a sort of a two-syllable effect. So it's almost like a spia, spia, rather than the spiz, spiz, spiz of a tree pipit. See if you can hear the difference in the comparison. So you'll hear tree pipit first and then red-footed pipit. The differences are there, but they're pretty subtle, and I'm not sure that I can adequately describe them using the English language. And for me, this is a great advert for actually recording what you hear, rather than re relying on a very restrictive vocabulary to describe bird sounds. So if you're birding in the Northern Isles or anywhere else where these rarities are going to be found, then do consider taking some bird recording kit with you, because it will make a massive difference in identifying and documenting records of these species.
You have been listening to Some Ornithological Chat, the podcast brought to you by the Scottish Ornithologists Club. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Scott Mason for providing a really interesting summary of where bird tracks going and also for telling us about his Room 101 choices and his time machine and all of those things. I don't have anything to promote for SOC at the moment, so what I will do is I'll encourage you to have a rummage around on the SOC's website where you'll find some really cool stuff. For example, the online Scottish Bird Report, which has all the information ever published in a county bird report in Scotland, apart from the most recent ones, in a searchable database. So you can search by county, by species, by year, etc., etc. I think it's brilliant. Go and have a look at that. There's also information about the fantastic Where to Watch Birds in Scotland app, which you can download on all the sort of major uh, app platforms. There's information about that on the website. And there's information on how you can join the club and how you can subscribe to Scottish Birds, which is a really great journal. And of course, there's an awful lot more as well. I'd also need to thank Zeno Canto for providing their massive repository of bird songs and calls for people like me to use for this sort of thing. The individual recorders are credited in the podcast notes. And you might remember that Scott mentioned the great fall of 1965. I think I might have said 1963 in the podcast, but it was 1965. And it was a remarkable occurrence of common and less common migrants particularly in East Anglia, with many, many hundreds of thousands of birds involved. So in the, in the podcast notes, I have put some links to places where you can read about that as well. Until the next time, good birding.